0: Hello, hello, this is Reality of Reality, and I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast, I'm adding to the roster of amazing women who own production companies. Jody Flynn is the president of Outpost Entertainment. That's part of ITV America, and they produce a lot of unscripted content for lots of networks and digital outlets. Before launching Outpost Entertainment, Jodi was in development at Cineflex and Screaming Flea Productions. She developed and sold a bunch of successful series, including the Emmy-nominated Hoarders for A&E, Three Sheets for Spike, and My Shopping Addiction for Oxygen. Jody's successful show, Forged in Fire, premieres April 11th on History Channel. We're now in season four of that show, so be sure to check it out. It's kind of like Chopped, but for weapons. Hi, Jody. Hi, Elisa. How are you? I'm good. So I always start by saying how we met. So we met 10 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long, fruitful relationship. It has. But of course, I've already feel like I've learned a lot about you in those 10 minutes. So that, that was productive. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we were actually—you um, were suggested to me as a guest by Alex Banyas, who is now an agent, a Kaplan Staller, who we love. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, yeah, Alex. Yeah, he's just like—he's always been like a sweet, you know, fan, if you will, of the podcast, and always sort of talking about, you know, people he's recommending, et cetera. And I'd always kind of known your name, um, but you know, I always like sort of a connection to somebody as opposed to just reaching out cold. Sure, of course. So I'm so glad that he introduced us. Well, thank you for having me here. And I've also, you're, you're welcome, I'm also adding you to my very small roster of awesome uh, female uh, production company owners because there's a, a, a paltry uh, mix, unfortunately. Yeah,
1: there aren't that many of them. It's amazing how many, you know, for an industry that has so many women in it and powerful women and a lot on the network side and run networks that you wouldn't expect women to run all the time. There aren't as many production company owners, but there's more. There, there's starting to be more, I feel like. I'm glad because it bums me out. Yeah, no, I think women bring a certain creativity to the process and have a different viewpoint. And so I think that I do think our industry is open to it, which is nice as opposed to other industries. And even just reality TV, I think, is more open to it than other parts of television because it's a relatively young part of the industry. We don't think of it as young anymore because it's so entrenched in what we do and it's everywhere and there's so much of it. But the truth is, it's really not that old. Real World was not that long ago. And I think that because of that, women are seen very equal in this part of the industry. I think it's very different from a lot of other parts of entertainment.
0: That's actually a really good point because you're right. There's so many women, especially on the network side. Mm-hmm. I mean, you pitch to more women than you do men, I feel Many like. more and, and at higher levels. Right, which is which is great. It's just nice to see. I mean, I think being a production company owner is a whole different ball of wax in that it takes up your – it is your life. I mean, it's your, it is. you know, it's your And baby. I never it's had a, a desire to own a company. Right. It so, was
1: not a goal of mine. Really? Ever.
0: <laughs> so you kind of fell into it?
1: I kind of fell into it. I, I'm a creative. I'm a, I was a producer. I started in news. And I, I can tell you that story. But I started yeah. in news and then moved into production um, um, and then into development. And was offered an opportunity to start Outpost uh, by Brent Montgomery a couple of years ago. And. When someone makes you that kind of offer, you have to stop and go, I should take this chance and see what I can do. And so we did. And
0: it's been great. But it's
1: been a huge learning curve.
0: Wow. All right. So I want to hear all about it. Let's back up, though. I didn't know that you started in news. I
1: did. I started in news. I studied history and politics in college Mm -hmm. um, and really wanted to go into news. I was very high minded at the time, newspaper newspaper reading what was (laughs) dropping dramatically. Cable news was on the rise. CNN was just starting. Local cable news outlets were just starting. And I I can clearly remember telling my mother as I was graduating from college that I really wanted to be in television news because I thought I had a duty to deliver news to people who just wouldn't read anymore. (laughs) And so this is what I was going to do. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I was going to do it. Lofty, yeah. I just, yes, I was very high-minded at the, at uh, the time. And where were you? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Manhattan. Oh, okay. And then I went to college at George Washington, uh-huh. uh, and I loved being in DC. And I was a Capitol Hill intern, you know, in the Clinton years, which was an interesting experience in oh. itself. And um, <laughs> did you know Monica? I didn't know Monica, but I was on the Hill around the same time. Um, wow! But it, you know, it was a tremendous experience to work up there. It's it's something that most people never actually do to kind of walk those halls and right. understand how things happen. And I took my first job at of school at a consulting firm because it's what I could get mm-hmm. and learned the ropes of how you hire television talent. They were a news consulting firm for small stations across the country. And I started as a secretary, assistant, whatever you want to call it. I think they called it a secretary then. Mm-hmm. And then moved over to doing talent searches. They had this funky little division called Talent Bank, and they would provide Uh, talent searches for their client stations from small markets. So literally twice a year, I would send boxes. I was thinking about this when I was thinking about coming in here today. I would send boxes of VHS tapes to people we could find in small markets over the country. Someone's cousin, someone's friend, someone's aunt, whatever. And we would have them tape the local news for a week. They would send us back the tapes and we would literally just comb through them looking for New young reporters to
0: deliver to our bigger markets. It was so interesting. Yes, it I was really I didn't interesting. I actually know that's the way it was done way back. That's the way it was done way back. Interesting. And did you find Diamonds
1: in the Rough? We did. One of my favorite Diamonds in the Rough was uh, Deborah Roberts. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. I found her and that's she was huge. just moving over to Miami. So we would find people and you look, you would look back and go, oh yeah, we knew. You could see it early on at the ones who were going to kind of make it and make it to the network level. And I did that for, I think, a year. Or so. And then one of our client stations, um, their news director, took over News Channel 8, which was just launching, which was Washington, D.C.'s 24-hour local cable news station. And he offered me a job. He knew I wanted to be in a newsroom. And I went in and they they were hiring tons of people because they were starting this whole thing from scratch. And I went in and... He offered me a job as an associate producer, and he asked me questions like, do you know how to do a Vosat? And I'm like, sure, <laughs> I,
0: I know how to do that. I, I didn't even know what it stood for. Oh, my for. God, Vosat. I, I haven't heard exactly. that in so long. I had no so, idea. So for our listeners at home yes. under the age of 40, um, a Vosat is a VO, a voiceover, yeah. followed by a sat, which is a soundbite.
1: Right, exactly. And I said, I know how to do that, of course. And I went home and figured this was a prior, you know, where you could find everything on the Internet. <laughs> right. But I asked friends and I figured it out. And I went in as an associate producer and was there for two years until I was producing the Nightland News there,
0: which was ama- it was an amazing experience. Wow, in D.C., so that's pretty in cool. In D.C., it was great. And was this the same time, like in the late 90s, where 24-hour cable news had started, or was it before that?
1: It had just started, so this was 24-hour yeah. news, but it was the first one in D.C. New York One was already up and running right. in New York, okay. uh, and this was also owned by All Britain. So it was a big venture. They built a newsroom from scratch in Virginia. It was Mm non-union, which meant I could do everything. I could pick up a camera. I could learn to edit. I could do all the sorts of things that you can't necessarily do at a union station. Yeah. I didn't learn to do a lot of those things well, but I at least had an understanding Mm -hmm. of it.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I've talked about that before, how I think sort of having that jack-of-all-trades thing is so great. And it doesn't happen a lot anymore. It doesn't.
1: Everyone's very siloed. And I think that even if you don't know physically how to do everything, at least if you can speak the language of the people who work for you and with you, if you can speak the language of a DP, if you can speak the language of an editor, at least you can convey what you're looking for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, And just understand, you know, not have empathy, but but you know um, I think it was Jason Carbone was saying that you know he did every job Mm -hmm. when he started so that if someone came in and said well I can't do that he's like dude I've done it I know it can be done so I don't buy it right and it does give it gives you empathy also one of the things I'll never forget that we did at that local station was
1: our news director took a Saturday and put up (laughs) repeats of whatever during the day and we did a fake newscast (laughs) and we all had to do different jobs that we don't normally do and I was always a producer I was never on air and I was a reporter for this fake news story. And I went and I did it and I think it was 2.15 and the producer's like, no, I need a minute 45. And I was devastated. I was like, oh, that's what it feels like to be a reporter who really thinks you need the extra 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. You people have no idea how hard it is. It's so hard. And I think it does teach you to understand what people go through, especially creative people. It's a different, whether it's news or production, it's a different kind of process for them than an accountant or a lawyer, not better or worse. It's just different. And you have to manage them differently and you have to give them some free reign. You also have to rein them in at <laughs> yeah. times. So yeah. it's an interesting process. And I think, you know, one of the things in the story I just told you that I learned early on was to just say yes and figure it out. I still do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great lesson. It's a great lesson. Someone asks you if you can do it. Yep, I can do it and just figure it out.
0: Yeah. What was the great uh, motto of the feminist field of fear and do it anyway? Exactly. Yeah. I agree with that. I, I feel mean, it every day. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> ni- right. 99% of what we do is like, oh, I can't do that. I can't and do that. I don't do. know if I
1: can do this. Yeah. And you just do it.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. You Did you want to stay in news? Did you like it? I loved news. I loved news. Uh, I still miss news. Really? I do.
1: Um, I stayed in that and then I moved to Seattle where I worked for the local ABC affiliate. Mm-hmm. And in DC I had kind of specialized I did live broadcasts. I was control and producer and then where I learned to backtime shows by yeah. hand and do you know all of those things you don't necessarily have to do anymore but I really liked to do. I felt like my shows were kind of a living breathing entity as I produced them and I had back time you know software on the computer and in the control room but I never used it because I felt like you could kind of feel it and you had a rapport with your anchors and I loved that feeling I loved them making a decision really quickly yeah and you just if it was the wrong
0: one you fix it in two minutes there's nothing you can do about it do you think you could do it still the back timing I think I lost that. I don't think I could do it. I
1: think it would take some right? practice. Like, I don't know that
0: it's riding a bicycle. Like Even it's when you just said that, bicycle. I was like, I don't know if I could do that anymore. I,
1: I haven't tried in a really right? long time. And that time. was my life and for years. And it's not the same as just counting backwards. No. it's <laughs> <because> You're <laughs> it's counting not. in 12s and 60s. Yeah. And it's tricky. Yeah. But I always felt that it made me a better producer. I was more in tune with what was going on, what they were talking about, where I could cut things, and how I could bring this show in on time. Yeah. Um, And then I did a lot of live coverage. I covered presidential debates. I covered Mm -hmm. the inaugurations, both Clinton inaugurations, both on the mall and the uh, the balls, which was an amazing experience that most people never get that I wouldn't trade for anything. Another amazing lesson. I was at my first debate. It was a Clinton Bush debate, I believe, in Richmond, Virginia. And I had desperately wanted to go. I was a very young producer. I was like 22, and my assistant news director knew I wanted to go. I just I was like I have to go, and she pretended to be sick so that <laughs> they, they needed to send me. So I went, and my news director called me, and I was in my a satellite truck for the first time. And he he started to tell me something, and I said, Wait, wait, wait I need to get a pen. He yelled at me like I had never been yelled at before, that you always have to be prepared, have a pen. I don't go anywhere without a pen anymore to this day. Yeah. Um, But it's those experiences that were just amazing. And then I went to Seattle, and instead of going right into news, I took a job with a local talk show called Northwest Afternoon, which at the time was the longest running local talk show in the country. It had been on for 12 years, and it was daily. Oprah was kind of at her height at the time, and we kind of rode those coattails a bit. And we were Monday through Friday at 3 o'clock, and there were three show producers, and we were each responsible for two or three, depending on the week. Episodes, and we found the stories. We booked the people. We produced the show. We were in the control room, and it was a pretty remarkable experience.
0: It must have been. I, I just am speaking for myself, coming from the craziness of live news and you know a million stories, and you're like having a you know a, literally a stroke every night. To that slowing down a little bit of being able to tell longer stories and book it, it must have been like a welcome. Yeah. Or did you was. miss the adrenaline rush? I didn't.
1: There was a lot of adrenaline because we were live. at right? right. So, he was, he so was we still had that. What I found most striking, and I think really the reason I only stayed in it for a year, is there was an intimacy with the guests that you don't necessarily get as a news reporter or producer. Mm-hmm. You know, the, tell, wanting to get the mother of a son who'd just been murdered on your set is very different than just being out there at the scene and getting a bite from them. Yeah, and point. I found that you had to become people's best friends. And uh, you know, just like any other television, the bigger, more often more heartbreaking the story, the more interesting it is, right? Mm-hmm. It was my job to befriend someone who might have just suffered the biggest loss of their lives get them to come to a set in Seattle. Maybe they lived God knows where in Washington. Right. And we would we would send a car or whatever we had to do to bring them and put them in front of a live audience and talk to them. And I was always very struck because they really felt like they had created a connection with me and a friendship, whereas I was like, I have another show in two days. Right. right. And it was difficult, and I felt badly about it. Of course. And I kind of struggled with that idea of having these people come in and feeling a little like I was using them you know I did the best I could okay. I mean, we didn't pay people we didn't you know and I was very honest with people about what we were doing but still these people were in a very vulnerable place and this was a big deal for them they were going to be on television
0: right but as I guess the other side of that is you know there is a catharsis with them being able to tell their story yes
1: absolutely that's
0: how I just defined no, it anyway <laughs> I think that's absolutely
1: true it's absolutely yeah. true but it was a Amazing learning experience yeah. for that
0: year. And then I went back to news at the same station. Okay. And so then when was the turn to um, to reality? Uh, I had my first child and I left TV for a couple of years. I left everything. I stayed home. And how was that after being in such an intense environment to mommying?
1: It was amazing and difficult. Yeah. I was grateful that I had the choice and that I could stay home with her But I missed working. I had moved back and forth. And at the time when my daughter was little, I was in Virginia. uh, And my then husband was working and he was in graduate school. And I didn't really know anyone down there. And it was me and my daughter in the winter in Virginia. (laughs) It sounds terrible. (laughs) And we bonded a lot. Yeah. Uh, But I I missed working. And I actually tried. I had a friend who worked for an association and she needed some help with some advertising stuff and she offered me some part-time work and I was like, all right, I'll try this. It was mm-hmm. miserable. I couldn't even bring people to t- myself to tell people that I was doing it. I, people would say, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a television <laughs> producer. Right. It's always been Your identity. what I am. Yeah. It's what I am. Yeah. Whether it was news or production or whatever it was, I never even really imagined myself doing anything else. Yeah. I, I've always, can ask my kids, what does mommy always say? It's all about the story. Like, yeah. whatever your life is, it's all about that story, and I'm
0: a storyteller. Do you still call yourself—like, when you have to list profession on a forum, do you write TV producer? I do. I do, too. I do. It's so funny.
1: I, you know, sometimes yeah. I'll put president, TV producer.
0: Right. Uh, it's just so much easier. It's like you're—it's who you are. It's who I, I am.
1: Yeah. It's who I am. And, you know, it was a difficult transition when I moved from production yeah. to development because you have to let go so much more. It's a challenge. But— um, so I went to Seattle. I went back to news for a couple of years after I was home with my daughter. Again, went back and forth cross country a couple of times and found myself in Seattle with a three-year-old not knowing what I was gonna do. And I ran into some people at a fundraiser who had just started a company. People I had known from the ABC affiliate up there from Como and they, a company called Screaming Flea. And they had just sold their first show to HGTV, 65 half hours. Out of the gate, no pilot, no. Oh, presentation. Remember those orders? This
0: God bless. <laughs> totally,
1: just based yeah. on a small character reel with this, you know, very likable handyman kind of guy out of Galveston, Texas. What was the show? It was called Help Around the House. Mm-hmm. I think we, I don't. God, I don't know how many episodes we did in the hundreds. Oh, in the end, amazing. And a guy I had worked with said to me, "You know, we just sold the show. I Need a part-time coordinating producer." Again, I didn't know what a part-time coordinating producer was <laughs> yeah. in production. I had never done production, but it was part-time. I could do some of it from home. There wasn't the time pressure of live TV where if my daughter was sick or she needed me, I had to be there. Right. I could figure out how to get it done as long as I got the work done. So I was like, okay, I'll try this for a while. 14 years later, I left Screaming <laughs> play as vice president of development. So I started as a part-time coordinating producer. Eventually went into the field after that, ran a couple of little design shows for them, moved this house, which was a spinoff of Sell This House, uh, which we did sell. I think we did 225 episodes of. And then the owner of the company, a man who gave me tremendous opportunities, a guy named Matt Chan, who had been in the business a long time, would keep me on in between projects, in between shows. He would give me the chance to work on development kind of taught me how to write treatments, kind of you started to hone those skills a bit. And for various personal reasons on his end, he had always done all the development. He decided he wanted someone else to come in and help. There was the proliferation of cable networks. There were so many more of them. And we weren't in L.A. and he just needed help. Mm-hmm. And he had spoken to people from L.A. and he just, he's from the Northwest and he, it just wasn't a good fit for him. And So, he said, you know, would you want to try this full time? And for his own personal reasons, he needed someone to start quickly. I was getting divorced, and so I needed to not be traveling. I had been traveling the year or two before uh, as a field producer for megastructures for National Geographic, which was amazing. I was in Russia. I was in Kazakhstan. I was on a nuclear submarine. It was amazing experiences. But it wasn't something I could do anymore. I had two little kids. I was like, "All right, I've never done development. I'll figure it out." Yes. <laughs> so I took a full-time development job with him, and I was really, really lucky to have him and our agent at the time, who's still my agent, uh, a guy named Rob Miller. I don't know if you know him. Yeah. Name. Rob's at CAA now, but then he was Peloton in oh, yeah, Entertainment, of and the two of them really took me under their wing and taught me kind of the mechanics of development. I think a good developer is an innate skill. But there are things you can hone uh, and they what are really some of those me. things. I think you can learn how to write a treatment. I think you can learn what not to do in a room sometimes like i would th- when i first started i would go into the room and i would instantly put you know the treatments i had brought in when we used to bring treatments and i'd put it down in front of the exec. and rob's like yeah yeah no don't because if you hand it to them <laughs> right, then they're, they're looking at it exactly. and they're not listening to you giving oh, the pitch God. kiss a death kiss a death <clears throat> and you also can't adjust it because then it is then it's right. there in black <laughs> right. and white and if you want to adjust the pitch based on something that they've said you can no longer do that yeah so there's logistical things like that that i think i learned yeah I also learned that I'm a pretty good salesperson. I'm comfortable in a room. I don't get super nervous. It doesn't bother me to sit in a room with the president of a network and pitch my idea. And you have to have that confidence and that passion. And you have to believe that every idea you have is the best idea that anyone ever had until every single network (laughs) passes on it. And then you also have to move on. Yeah. Which but, are tricky mm. skills to master, I think, a little bit.
0: Oh, yeah. And not take it personally and not mm-hmm. feel like, you know, why is everyone not getting it and I'm the only one who is? <laughs>
1: right. I know this is going to be amazing. Right. It's going to be the best show this network's yeah. ever
0: had. And they're like, yeah, no. What's your baby that never got sold? Like, do you have one that is like your favorite, you know, that till have... this day kills you that never sold? Um,
1: I have a show that that I've had for a couple of years now. Um that I've, I've pitched over and over again to a lot of people, and it's not a big surprise it hasn't sold. It's funny; it actually had an offer. I won't say what at what network, but at a broadcast network for development. And they literally walked down the hall to ad sales, and ad sales said, "Yeah, no." Wow.
0: <laughs> and they pulled
1: the offer. That's um, well, your chance,
0: to. Which is not
1: which is not <laughs> unusual for me. Hoarders has a similar story, right. which I, I will tell. No, but no, no, no. Um, this is a show that I actually really believe in, and, and it it's a social experiment. And the idea was to take people who hate other people, like, and own it. So it kind of came out of the days of when, you know, Duck Dynasty was having some issues. And I think we learned as reality TV grew and we were overturning every stone looking for characters (laughs) who were bigger and louder. And sometimes these people have ugly histories and some do, some don't, but we were finding that that was starting to happen. And I thought, you know, we should own this. We should take, because it felt like, back to that news thing, it felt like it was important to me for us to address what was going on in the world and that there are people who don't like each other and how can we help that? And so to take, you know, the extreme haters, whether they're anti-Semites or anti-gay or whatever it was, and put them in the middle of nowhere together and create a show where they were forced to depend upon each other. and. In the end, would someone who thinks if, if I'm completely dependent on you to survive, am I going to hold your hand even though I was raised my entire life to hate you? Hmm. So it, it it would get really far at several places because it's got a really great idea
0: to it. Yeah, not the most ad sales friendly show. Yeah, it's in tough. The world. It's well, tough. especially with now with the whole KKK yes. and everything, it's like yes. probably toxic.
1: And this is bigger. It's got a, it's probably four years. I think it's a good idea. So I, mean, it's I do. One I'm not of those, I, think it, it's, I think it's a high-minded experiment that isn't necessarily as producible, you know, as viable for
0: all the networks, which I get. I yeah. totally get. But I like to take those swings sometimes. Yeah, why not? So let's yeah, Let's back up. Hoarders it has a good... Because Hoarders was a really interesting, gutsy show.
1: Thank you. And was that um, your idea? It was a combination. It was an evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt Chan had been in... Japan, I think. and he had seen a show about homes that just were the kind of the eyesore on the street. And it was a japan as you can imagine, the Japanese shows are always so amazing. Uh, and they would knock on the door and they would make over this really hideous house right. And you know, the house that had, you know, everything in piles in the front yard okay. and really just looked awful. And he came back. He's like, there's something to this. I was like, okay, And i had been doing development for a couple of years at that point. And I started looking around and trying to find something that could kind of be, you know, take that and make it work in the U.S. And I stumbled across a company in Rancho Cucamonga that was a husband and wife who were adorable. He was super handsome and a firefighter. She was this adorable little blonde who literally didn't have a sense of smell, which made her perfect for cleaning out. That's hysterical. Yes. And uh, they also did crime scene cleanup. So... We, I was like, well, this is great. Let's see if we can do something with this. I hired uh, one of my best friends who was down here to go shoot the sizzle. Uh, To this day, I don't think she's forgiven me. (laughs) She was a two-day shoot. She did a great job. And we put together a tape that we called Dirty Deeds. Yeah. And it was really kind of a... A, a dark humor that they used to deal with what they saw. And right. it, it was genius in a four-minute tape. Yeah. It was like, oh, they're funny and they're clever and they're yeah. dealing with these horrible things. And we took it to a real screen and we had multiple offers and we ended up selling it to Rob now at A&E. And it was great. And we were super excited. And I kid you not, it was the worst pilot you've ever seen. <laughs>
0: because it didn't work as a funny It didn't kind of work when color. you mm-hmm. actually
1: took it into a half-hour format. Right. Even though it was very real, this is how this couple and their company really dealt with what they saw. And they were great. And they did a wonderful job at what they did.
0: It just felt so off mm-hmm. when you actually put it into a show, which is why you pilot something, right? Yeah. It and does. so so they realized sort of the intervention model would be a way better way to go with it? Not just at that point. Okay. <laughs> Basically,
1: they said, yeah, this isn't going to work. Wow. And so they passed on it? They passed. And let it go? They let it go. But <gasps> they wanted it finished. That's they so wanted us to finish the 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 show so they'd have it so we did and we delivered it and uh, Tom Moody yeah Tom, Tom Moody I call him St. Tom he is yeah. St. Tom many yeah. times he has been St. Tom to me in my yeah, career same. he had he was running bio at the time mm-hmm. and he had a hole he's like eh, I'll throw this up see what happens no coming up no nothing for right. it and it popped a bit of a number and so he and Rob came back to me and said we don't want to do this couple we don't know what we want to do, but there's something something to this hoarding space because there hadn't been there had been specials, but not a series. Right. What can you figure out? And I remember I worked through Christmas because they had a a meeting and I forget exactly, but there was a deadline like it needed to be done quickly. And so we came up with a format that was hoarders. And, you know, really, it, it was tricky because you can't really cure a hoarder. So you know there isn't a, a thing like on Intervention where it's you can build to we're going to go away for three weeks and we're going to come back and maybe we're better maybe we're not. There isn't you can work with a hoarder for twenty years and not get anywhere. Yeah. So how do you do a show with a that's producible right. with a satisfying ending? And what the the real reason hoarders is structured the way it is is we're like okay we have let's say we have three days to shoot. What can we do that feels genuine that doesn't feel like we're taking advantage mm-hmm. of people who really are s- struggling? And what we came to find through research and talking to people was that there are crisis points for hoarders very often in that they're going to lose their house, they're going to lose their spouse, they're going to lose their job. They they literally, they have to clean out or something's going to happen. And that became kind of our motto. If they don't clean up, X will happen. What's X? And so that's really where the format came from. But and, and I had an amazing exec at A Andy Berg. Uh, I love Andy. Love Andy, who's an Andy. amazing, amazing developer <laughs> yeah. and dear friend. Yeah. And and Sharon, Rob Sharnow, who really believed in it and fought for it. And it wasn't easy. Ad Sales was like, Yeah, no, this is not going to be good. And I had an amazing conversation once. With Abby Raven, mm-hmm. who we, we formerly the head of yeah. ATN. And I was at a conference and it was, it was late and it was like, it was literally like 2 a.m. And <laughs> she was sitting, we were in Miami and she was sitting alone. And I was, uh, she didn't really, she knew who I was from Borders because it was already successful, but I didn't know her. And she was sitting alone. I was like, oh.
0: my chance. It's
1: in the morning. I probably had <laughs> a few drinks. And I was like, I'm gonna go sit next to Abby Raven. What was I thinking? And I go and I sit down and I introduce myself and she's like, no, 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 I know who you are. She's a lovely woman. And she looks at me and she goes, I have to tell you something. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what have I already done? I've only been sitting here for two seconds. She said, when my team brought me hoarders, she said, I didn't think it would work. She said, it was a great pilot. She said, I got it. You did an amazing job. She said, but I just didn't think anyone would watch. She said, and I was wrong. And I trusted my team. And they were completely right. And it's an amazing show. And thank you. And wow, it was an amazing moment yeah. for me as a you know,
0: relatively Absolutely. young producer. And, um, and also just that lesson of trusting your team. A hundred percent. You know, it's interesting that she said that because, you know, if I'm being honest, like, I couldn't watch that show. because You're not the only person yeah, who said it, that to me. <laughs> it was like a triggering thing for me. Um, and I imagine, but I totally get the sort of lurid fascination with it. And the fact that, again, there is a cleanup and there is an an ending. But um, I could imagine if I was on the network side that I would have been nervous about it too because I have a thing with smell, mm-hmm. <laughs> like a real, like I'm sensitive to everything. Yep. Like I can smell your perfume from a mile away. I can, it's very nice, by the way. But I Thank have like you. a very, but like that's a pleasant smell. Do you know what I mean? But I'm just, so... If I even see something, I can smell it. Right, <laughs> like, and know? I think and a lot of point, people. By can. the
1: way, right? We used to joke we don't really need smell vision for the show. Like you get it, and the imagination yes. is almost better. Right,
0: right. There's a little. But that bit of makes that. me like really nauseous. <laughs>
1: you and a lot of people, you know. Think, but
0: look, I was wrong because that show was a hit.
1: It was. I mean, and it's it a just great broke idea. Really quickly, and you kind of back to what I try to do in the shows that I create, and I think it's why. I, my company does, the kind of projects that we do, yeah. is that I really believe that entertainment has an ability to create a conversation and do something real. And it go. I think it goes back to that moment when I was graduating from college, right? Like, I'm going to bring people news because they're not yeah. reading the newspapers anymore. I think that you can entertain someone and have them learn something at the same time and not even know it.
0: Well, I agree with that, but I will take it one step further, which is that show actually changed lives, right? Mm-hmm. So you didn't just... You know, create a conversation, which you certainly did, um, but and entertain, but also have, you know, um, something smart as a takeaway, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But you also really did something good for these people.
1: We tried. We certainly right. did. And I think, Do you think treated they treated them. Back?
0: Do you think that a lot of them went back to hoarding after? Some of
1: them never even got better. Um, right. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's been some update shows since I've left Screaming Ugh. Flea. I think that even more than a l- the hoarders that we helped, I really believe we helped a lot of their families mm-hmm. who who didn't yes. know there were so many people who struggled with this problem. We provided aftercare, which was a very big deal for months. We had a full-time aftercare coordinator. Uh-huh. And even if the hoarder didn't want the aftercare, we would roll it over to the family and say, do you want help? Do you want to go see a therapist? Do you need, an, you know, whatever it was. So I felt like we treated all the people who appeared on our show with a tremendous level of respect. Yeah. We had really the same crews for almost the entire time, at least that I was there. And they were remarkable. Remarkable. I mean, in all the time, in, in the 90-plus episodes that I was EP on, I never got to complain about a crew going into these homes. And sometimes the the cameramen were in full hazmat gear hey. and they're trying to shoot. And it sounds odd, but if you look at that show, it's really beautifully shot. They yes. did a remarkable job of capturing that feeling of the smell and the chaos. The, the chaos, thank yeah. you, of what it's like to be in those homes under really difficult circumstances for a crew. And people are yelling and crying, and it's disgusting. And they were just remarkable. And I think that is one of the reasons the show worked so well. And then, of course,
0: TLC copied it, right? <laughs> they did. <laughs> they did. Which is the, what is it? Um, the, the highest, sincerest form of sincerest flattery. The form of flattery, exactly. which is
1: totally fine. Yeah. Um, you know, and they took a little bit of a different approach. Right. But it, I'm super proud of that
0: show. And how many seasons did it go for? It's still going.
1: Is it? What, oh, they brought it back. They brought lifetime, it back for right. Lifetime. And now I, th- right. and I, I don't know where it stands exactly right now, but, you know, with a and doing some different things, I wouldn't be surprised. It still airs. It's still... well. I think there's still a fascination with it. And I think there's a fascination with it because either it repulses you and you can't sit and watch or you have an aunt who's a hoarder or, you know, we all have that pile of T-shirts in the back of our closet that we're never going to wear again and we just can't part with it. And so you understand that feeling, even if it's not taken to the limit of controlling your life.
0: Oh, you understand yeah. the feeling oh, and
1: that's I, what gives it I think a relatability. Absolutely.
0: So when did you make the move to output? Like so you said Brent came to you. Uh,
1: there was a step in between. So I was at Screaming Flea for 14 years. Started as coordinating producer, left heading up development and uh, I came, moved to LA uh, with Cineplex. They offered me a tremendous job as EVP to help open their West Coast office. And they're based in Canada. Yeah, they're based in Toronto. I was actually, I had been in in talks with Brent prior to that about coming down here and doing the same for him and it just kind of didn't work out. Cineflix made me this great offer and I took it. And I had kids to think, you know, I was like, what's the biggest job I can take to (laughs) to, to, totally, you know, turn my life upside down. And I took the Cineflix job and I did that for a year, which was fascinating and amazing. And I learned a tremendous amount about international sales uh, working with Canadian companies and what benefit that can bring to a broadcaster as well as to a production company. Uh, learned all about, you know, CanCon and how that works. And you know, they had one of my favorite things about Cineflix was they have this amazing distribution arm. And we would get these internal memos from dis- distribution saying we just sold 415 hours into Eastern Bloc countries. Mm-hmm. I'm like. Do they even have television? (laughs) Why don't you just sell 450 hours? And a guy named Chris Bonney, who's the head of that division, was just amazing at answering questions and educating me on that process. Even though I wasn't directly involved with that kind of sales, it was fascinating to be a part of a company that did that and to kind of learn about that. And then some things changed there, and I was literally trying to decide what to do one day. Uh, they had offered me a promotion and I wasn't sure I wanted to take it and I was talking to Brent Brent and I had been friends for I don't know 10 years I guess when I sold Hoarders he sold Pawn Stars they were very close time wise Hmm. and he was represented by Rob Miller at at that time and so we had met through Rob and just had always been friendly and I was literally standing I was in New Orleans visiting my boyfriend who at the time was running a show down there and it was a pouring rain out, and I was in his in one of the offices in his production office, and I was just talking to Brent, and he's like, well, what are you going to do? I'm like, I said, I don't know. I said, I'm thinking about hanging out my own shingle. I'm at an age where I'm going to do it or I'm not going to do it. I'm lucky enough to be on the end of the business where I create ideas and content, and I can have some harebrained idea in the middle of the night or in the shower, and nine months later it's in production or less or more and <laughs> yeah. 30 people have jobs which makes me really happy and I get to tell stories you know maybe I try it myself and he literally said to me if you want to hang out your own
0: shingle we will partner with you and I said what? <laughs> and that was before he had done any of those partnerships
1: uh, I was the second I was okay. after Loud he had he had bought Sirens uh, oh, and okay, he had launched Loud with Nick Rigg he was building his empire he was building the empire it was prior to selling to ITV right. just a couple of months yeah and I said, OK. And we made a deal. And he went back to some of his uh, finance people in particular and told them he had made this deal with me and that they needed to work out, you know, the real details of yeah. it. And some of them were concerned, rightfully so. They like, they said, OK, we first of all, none of us know her. <laughs> right. She's yeah. never run a company. Yeah. She's a developer. Right. She's not a financial person. How yeah. do we know she's not going to run this into the ground? Right. <laughs> He's like, no, no, no. no. I, I know. her. I've known her forever. It's She's going to be great. It'll be fine. Just. Figured out. Wow. And he stood by it. And now, did you have those same concerns? Oh, gosh. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. I was terrified. Right. I was terrified. And I went into the finance people and I, when we finally made a deal. And I said, Look, I said, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> I don't have a clue how to read a p and I don't know how to put together a budget for next year. I don't know. But I, what I do know is that I know television yeah. and I know how to sell shows. So if you will teach me and help me, right. we'll make this work. And they were, you know, grateful that I kind of put that out there. I said, yeah. you're not going to insult me by explaining something. And I will ask what seem like really stupid questions because in the end I'm going to be responsible for this money and it they've just been a tremendous partner did things change once ITV uh, bought left field they did and they didn't um not immediately you know it was a little jarring it was yeah. about 4 months in again kind of to Brent's credit i think he explained to ITV the value of outpost and loud we were both relatively young loud was a little farther ahead than i was but I think he explained to them what his vision was for having these new companies that weren't just pod deals, they're actual uh, at least in my case a joint venture and you know he fought for us, yeah, and I think it's turned out, but for me personally, it changed it changes a little when you're owned by a large international company, yeah that has you know investors to report to and right. needs more projections and things like that. but in the end, it has been a huge benefit, and it has just prospered in LA. When I started out, when we started Outpost, I was in an office by myself in Sunset Gower because yeah. there was nothing else out here. Out The name Outpost was suggested
0: by my boyfriend. I was going to ask where it came from. He
1: suggested it. And then it made sense because I was kind of left field to Outpost. That, there was nothing why? else out here.
0: And why? I was like, okay, we'll use this. It's better than Lonely Island. Exactly. I <laughs> <That> was taken. <laughs> exactly. So we
1: went with Outpost and it was, it was tough at first. It was, yeah. you know, I think we all thought That it would be like I was on another floor in the left field building because they had a couple of floors over there. And we would just send her cuts and we would do this because everything was in New York. Yeah. And it it wasn't. It's not the same being out here. So there were definite growing pains. (laughs) But we figured the one thing about all of left field and now ITV is that Brent does a remarkable job of putting together people who play well in the sandbox. Yeah. And who want to help each other, you know, we're a group of competitors, but the presidents of several companies literally sit on the same floor in Sherman Oaks and are are eager to help each other with their projects and and provide resources and give up a resource if you have a deadline and, and make things work because we all genuinely
0: like each other. So when you started Outpost, did you have a vision for what your brand would be or was it just like, I'm going to develop and sell shows I want to do?
1: Uh, We had a vision. We had a vision of wanting to really kind of be a 60-40 production company and that I don't typically lean uber female or uber male. I kind of ride the line. I I do tend to develop shows that are more male but don't isolate female viewers. So if you look at a show like Fortune Fire over on History... You know, we have a lot of female viewers, which kind of surprised us. You know, if a guy's watching it, a woman walks in, they're not going to turn it off. They're not going to walk out of the room and, and or, or vice versa. We're mm-hmm. working on some stuff for TLC. And we you know, the hope is that it doesn't drive either out of the room. It yeah. was kind of our mission. Right. And how did Forged and Fire come about? Forged in Fire. Uh, when we when we first started Outpost, I got a call from Tim Healy. Yeah, I love Tim. We love Tim, who I had also known him? for Growing years. He yeah, <laughs> he's doing his own thing now and he is doing great. Did he buy Forged and Fire? We created it together. Nice. And he had he came to me and said a couple of years before I had done a bible for Spike uh, that didn't ended up not going, but I it had reverted. For this show? No, for a similar show, a okay. weapons-based show. Got it. it. was a gun show. And and gun shows are hard. Yeah. Gun mm-hmm. shows are really hard. Yeah. But Tim had seen it, and it was kind of my first, the first time I had done a big 80-page Bible that just told you it was big. 80 pages. It was 80 pages. I don't know if I've ever done a Bible that long. And he said, you know, I remember that Bible. I know you like the weapons space. He said, I don't want to do that show. He said, but I am interested in a weapons show, and I don't, you know, I have some thoughts but not sure what it is. Do you want to figure it out? with me?" And I said, of course. And he didn't. He wasn't talking to a million other companies, he came directly to me, and we figured it out together. He gave me a little bit of money, and we figured out what that could look like. And it was another one that was, you know, it's pretty niche, and he fought for it. And I have to give history credit as well, because they fought for it. It wasn't a hit out of the gates, it had a rough start. But what they did was they really dove into the numbers in a way you don't always see a network do and found that there was a lot of good stuff there and who was watching it and how they were watching it and how they were coming to it. And they really shifted gears very quickly and got behind it and really gave it a
0: chance. And that, that's just so rare. I mean, so rare. and now you're in season four. I mean, that's that's a legitimate hit show because, you know, reality. I mean, it's even if the numbers are OK, you don't get a second season.
1: Yeah. No, we've been really <laughs> blessed with a fourth season. We're doing 30 hours of it this wow. year. We go back, you know, going back on the air and per season.
0: This uh, it's built every year. So right. this year it's 30. Wow, it started incredible. as 20, then they upped it. And I called it in my intro. I called it chopped for weapons. It's exactly what it is. It's exactly what it <laughs> I is. I mean, not to dilute, but it was no, just no, to get your head around it in a one log, you know, one line. It's absolutely yeah. what it is. And is I, that how you thought about it when you developed it?
1: Yeah, and I and Tim wanted. to, He's like, he loved chopped. He's That's like, so there's funny. a way for us to do something in the space in a chopped format. Yeah. How do we how do we figure it out? Yeah. And you know. I, when we started, there was talk of eventually adding different things. Maybe you add guns. Maybe you do different stuff. And the blades just work. And yeah. y- it's remarkable throughout my career. there have, Most of my biggest shows have been shows where I looked at them and went, Mm-mm. I don't know how long this can go. Yeah. <laughs> we did sell this house. And I wasn't in development at the time, but I was the... Um, the coordinating producer and it was a struggle to get the first one done and then they ordered it and I remember thinking I don't think I can book 13 people who want to do this. Yeah. And 200 and something episodes later quarters. Right. <laughs> Same I, thing. Yeah. Literally internally we went How many times are people going to watch a show like this? Like the visual is pretty similar from episode, but it became not about the visual necessarily, became about the people living in the visual. Right, right. Um, And Forged was similar. Interesting. We didn't know if there was enough diversity in what we could do. And we've had a remarkable team that has come back season after season, which I think is a testament to the show itself. Who have created different... Your crew, you mean the the crew team. Yeah, from the director on down, uh, who have just done an amazing job of fine-tuning it every season and upping the challenges and changing things. And I think one of its true attributes attributes, is that (laughs) the show, it's crafted not to be nasty Mm -hmm. by a design. We went into it saying we don't want this to be kind of... We don't. It's not about them trying to undermine each other. There's a camaraderie and a bit of a bromance between the contestants.
0: You know, they'll help. You. They're competitive. They want to win, but they'll also help each other. I think people actually prefer that now. It used to be like you felt like you had to do that, you mm-hmm. know. And I find now. That the shows that I, competition shows that I watch, like, you know, even I was watching The Voice um, mm-hmm. a week ago with my daughter and, you know, the two contestants that are battling it out or whatever, the way they're hugging each other at the end, I love you, I love, it's like it warms my heart. Mm-hmm. I'd so much rather see that than I'm going to beat her ass. <laughs> <You know laughs> and I, mean? I, and I, I definitely think male
1: viewers who watch shows like this prefer kind of the, yeah, they don't, the that's very female. It's very, like, it's very female, that cattiness. Right, right. And so I think that it's one lives. of the exactly, <laughs> um, which are great shows. Yes. I've never, I haven't really done much docu yeah. for no reason except it's just not what I'm drawn to. Yeah. And I have, especially now, I have sister companies that, that do it so well right. <laughs> that I feel like I should just stay, in, stay in my lane yeah. and do the kind of shows that I, I think I, I do really well and that I
0: enjoy producing and that I can kind of dig my teeth into. Yeah, no, I, I, that makes sense. Why not? When you're doing a show like Forge and Fire, which is so many, so intense, so many hours. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a major operation, and you're not a showrunner anymore, right? You're running a company. And, and I was have,
1: never really. I wouldn't even call myself a showrunner. Okay, right? I was. I, I produced some production. design show. Yes, you're in production. <laughs>
0: like, how do you sort of stay hands on but hands off, where you have to keep selling other stuff to keep the lights on, right?
1: Yeah, I learned very early on in my development career. To Leco, yeah. In a way that it was difficult. Yeah. The, I sold several shows kind of out of the gate. My first real screen, I literally sold three series off paper to Fine Living, 8 by 30 I remember sitting them. in a bar. <laughs> remember them?
0: Ken Takano. And Takano. That's exactly who
1: I <laughs> sold them to. And I thought, oh, this isn't so hard. Yes, What's easy. the big deal? We sold three sheets. Actually, three sheets yes. was the first presentation I ever sold uh, to Mojo. Mojo back in the day. Mojo, in the day. And... I'm like, this isn't so hard. It won't be so bad. And I got very involved. And then I sold a show to We called Adventures in Doggy Daycare all relatively quickly. And being having come from production, I kind of was really in the thick of it and wasn't developing as much as I should have been. And then the Fine Living shows didn't come back. And we, I think we did two seasons of Doggy. I can't remember. Three sheets took hold, but then Mojo went away. And development is really a beast that you have to feed constantly, and you really need to have everything. You need to have multiple projects at every level of it. There needs to be new ideas. There needs to be stuff that you're just formulating. There needs to be stuff that you're pitching, stuff that's in paid development, stuff that's in pilot stuff, that's in first season, stuff that's renewing. Like, that's the holy grail, right, is that that whole pipeline is filled so that when things fall out, as they inevitably do at any of
0: those stages, there's other stuff to pick it up. Absolutely. Of course. And we were talking off off mic about um, the rejection of it all. And how do you deal? I mean, you get used to it, right? Because you've been doing it a long time. You do. But it's, it's disappointing. You know, it's a tough racket. It's
1: really tough. The, <laughs> first, the first two years, I cried a lot. <laughs> Rob Miller, Miller will tell you a story that about two years into me doing development full-time, he called me to tell me someone had passed on something. Honestly, I cannot tell you what it was. <laughs> and I said something to the effect of, you know, well, to hell with them. I, think, I don't think I said it so politely. But, uh, and he said, oh, thank God, we're finally there. She gets it. And when I started Outpost... I don't know if I'll kill me for telling this story. But when I started Outpost, and I, I had been with CAA at Cineflix, and I went back to Rob uh, under the Outpost banner, and we were signing our deal. He literally put into the contract, if she cries, he, he gets an extra half percent. Stop. And I swear to hysterical. God. And the folks at my back office at Leftfield sent me an email and said, hey, <laughs> Rob Miller wrote this into your contract. I'm like, it's OK. You, you can sign it. And it's hard. It's, it's really story. hard. And it doesn't mean I don't cry. I just don't cry in front of Rob Miller anymore. Right. But, you know, you just have to, you know, kind of get up every morning and believe in yourself and believe in your team and believe in your projects and and find those execs at the networks who feel passionate about your projects because especially now they have so many layers that they have to sell up to they don't have necessarily the ability just to order something the way they did 15 years ago because there's just so many pressures on the networks and you really have to appreciate those relationships and understand that it's not personal and take the rejection with the successes and try to sit in the successes a little bit it's difficult i think to have something sell have something work I actually said recently to someone because uh, we got a dev deal, it, and someone said, "You know, don't get too excited yet." There's a lot of development there, and I told him, "I said, you know what? I said I try to celebrate even just the little steps, and still having a horse in the race at this point, <laughs> right? You have because to. you have to, yeah. and you don't know how far it's going to get. And you know, sometimes things happen really quickly. And you know, I've gotten recently calls from networks where like we need something in a week." And can
0: you do it? Yes, and I you love say yes. those calls. You those say are the yes. best. Because something's actually moving fast. Right. <laughs>
1: and you're like, you need it in a week? I yeah. am on it. I yes. will kill myself. Well, from
0: news. You could do anything. You could do anything.
1: Yeah. We turned a bio once uh, <laughs> on Kay- Casey Anthony. Was yeah. it Casey Anthony at Screaming Flea like in a, a week. week? Yeah. We did in that with Charlie Sheen. Yeah.
0: Like a two hour
1: <laughs> It's possible. And sometimes people look at you and they go, oh, that's not possible. I'm like, it's, po- it's, it's possible. And you're right. If you come out of news, you're like, you it's possible.
0: And that was the thing. We had all news people and we were like, oh, with this this is no problem. You know, this can be done. I always say um, producing things like packing. Like, if you have an hour to pack, you get your packing done. If you have two weeks, you take your time, you don't get it done.
1: It's totally true. You know? I always say that about like planning a wedding. Yeah. It'll take but, a
0: year to plan a wedding. You know what? If you have two months, it'll be fine. You'll get it all done. The cake will be there. My first reality show, um, well, technical reality show, was a show called 48 Hour Wedding, where literally the couple have 48 hours to plan and then have their wedding. Right. And trust me, you don't sleep, but it got done. But and it was beautiful. And it was a celebration and everything happen. right but you got
1: fed you just get so excited that something's happening (laughs) nowadays because somebody said yes to something yahoo exactly it's true it's really challenging
0: so i always have these sort of stock questions that i ask my guests so i will start with what is your proudest accomplishment in general, or yeah, I know everyone says their in, kids, in which, which I guess would be—I mean, I hope that would be everybody. I was going to yeah. say it would be my kids, yeah. but if you take Your my kids parents, off the exactly. table, pre-
1: I would say my ability to take chances. Mm-hmm. I think I like that. that I've made a lot of hard decisions because I was ambitious, and they weren't always the decisions most people would make. And I did them anyway, and I think they've paid off for me and my kids, but kind of because it always kind of comes back to that for me and taking care of them and for um, and for my life. And now my relationship, which are kind of the three tenets of my life right now, yeah, that's my relationship, nice. my kids and my work are kind of the three things that I cherish most. And making those hard decisions has allowed me to have
0: those. So I think that's probably what I'm most proud of. I love that. And do you have any regrets? No, oh. <laughs> Wow. I've never had such a quick no. I like that.
1: I mean, there are things that I look back on that I would say I might do it differently. Yeah. Knowing what I know
0: now. Right. But yeah, I don't it's have it's any regrets. Great. So as someone who's producing reality all the time, do you actually watch reality shows? I watch, a, I, I try
1: to watch at least one episode of most new shows right. or certainly the ones Check that are in my lane. So mm-hmm. I have an understanding of what's going on. I, I watch a lot of scripted watch all ne- a lot of Netflix like yeah. everybody else, I think that we can, I try to learn so much from scripted because obviously they have the ability to do so many things that we don't because because it's scripted and you can make the actors say whatever you want and you right. can tell whatever story you want. <laughs> but I, in addition to the, the storytelling, what I think they do so well is find new visual devices. And I think that that helps our shows cut through the clutter. I think one of the reasons Forge and Fire cut through the clutter, Hoarders cut through the clutter, was because if you're going by it, you're just looking for someone to watch, you're like, oh, shit, what is that?
0: Yeah, that looks different. That
1: looks different. Yeah. Forge and Fire looks different for history. It's slick, and it's sparks, and it's fire, and it's like, what is that? It's sticky. And I think that the more mature... Reality becomes the more we have to figure out how to do that. It's not enough just to put a camera on some great characters anymore. We need to up the we need to up our production value with lower budgets, and I, there's ways to do that. I think if you're creative and you have DPS who are really good and you you really think it through, you can create different visuals and audio cues as well that become very identifiable. On Hoarders, we had that. In between the stories where we transitioned, there was this whoosh sound that became kind of a pop culture touchstone. Kathy Griffin used to reference it in her (laughs) stand-up. And literally, that was just us literally for weeks playing with different sounds in my office. Didn't really cost anything. Yeah, but it became a signature, and so I think that that's really important. And I
0: forget what your question was and where I was going. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> great. It was about um, just you know, it was actually the stock question is, do you you know, what are your top three favorite reality shows? Oh, what are
1: my top three favorites? Do I watch? Oh, my top three favorites. I would have to say I am a fan of one of my sister company shows, Killing Fields, mm-hmm. over on Discovery, Discovery. That's done by Sirens. I would have to say I'm a big fan of uh, game shows. I don't know if they fall into reality, but it yeah. is a space oh, that we're absolutely. trying to get into. I, I'm incredibly impressed with The Wall. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it. It's, you know what? it's. They added a piece of earnestness to it that you wouldn't expect would work. Because <laughs> yeah. everyone always says being earnest doesn't work. But it works here. And I think they've done an, an interesting job with that show. Because I I, check it out. It, it's something that I would really like to do. More of. Uh-huh. Um, as you can see, I kind of lean towards the formats. Yeah, yeah, of course. A lot. Yeah, those are probably the top two of the okay. new ones. Okay. And, uh, you know, th- uh, some of the Netflix stuff. I don't know if you call them reality. The chef's tables. the oh, So
0: beautiful. You know, the
1: shows like that I really I enjoy. do call that reality. Yeah. I mean, it's doc. It's reality. It's doc. Yeah. And I lean towards the docs yeah. more and, and trying to take those doc elements and make them into a format that uh, uh, my networks can use. What are your goals for Outpost? My goals for Outpost are to produce programming that we as storytellers are proud of that are entertainment first with a bit of education that you don't know that you're getting. That's, that absolutely sums it up. Um, I mean, we have a project at National Geographic that is, you know, kind of in their 2.0 space. It's unannounced, I can't really talk about it, but it, it's, it's in that blend of scripted
0: and factual, cool. which is something
1: I haven't done before. Yeah, it's
0: interesting. Like the Mars show does Exactly. We're, we're looking at that first show we're doing. I think it's super interesting. It's so
1: interesting. And I think that would probably be the next layer of things that my I hope for Outpost is to kind of create new genres by mashing up. I know that's such a kind of cliched term at this point, by mashing up different things that you don't usually put together and creating something new, because I think that's what we have to do. And I think the viewer after 30 plus years of reality and obviously scripted has become an educated viewer. We can do things that we couldn't do 20 years ago because the the viewer understands how to watch these things more. And so they're willing to try things they wouldn't have been willing to try 20 years ago.
0: It's true. So well, I think, and I think also the hope. networks are desperate for something different also because they're just trying to get hits so it's like in a way it maybe is a good time because they're willing to take those chances and the hopes that it will break out right and i think you know the the move towards scripted the hybrid model is a good one because mm-hmm. it's more fun for us too for, for sure awesome. for sure
1: one of the other shows i've been watching which i actually think is fascinating is the leah remini show
0: yeah, it's so well done Eli and Aaron. It's
1: and it's it's an interview show. <laughs> yeah. It literally right. is just an interview show, but you don't realize it as you watch it. Yeah. And I think they've done a remarkable job of taking something that you would sometimes look at and go, that's not going to work because it doesn't seem like it should, but it does.
0: Yeah, and I think honestly a big this is no, I mean it's produced beautifully, but I think it's so much Leah totally you know I mean as with most shows you know if that it's the talent that's gonna rise make or break the show and sure. I think that that show Leah's such an electric personality her passion is just all consuming um, and it's brave I mean it's a really brave show Very brave. That, that show comes up a lot actually I'm sure yeah I'm sure well it was so great to have you Jody. I'm thank so glad you. that we connected thank you for
1: having me this was a lot of fun I enjoyed it thank you